following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Blessed is the man who walks in your favor, who loves all your words and hides them like treasure. In the darkest place of his desperate heart, they are alive. A strong, sure light Sometimes I call out your name But I cannot find you I look for your face But you are not there Come to my trouble 
the poorest heart Touch me and make me message is entitled, The Divine Influence of Grace. The Divine Influence of Grace. Almighty God, I thank you for your divine influence upon my life and the life of this fellowship. I thank you, Lord, for that influence that is constantly working by grace to draw our hearts into yours. I pray, Lord, that you will grow us up, that we would leave behind our childish ways, that we would put those ways behind us, that we would no longer be absorbed in ourselves, that we could turn our face fully upon you, Jesus, that the divine influence of grace might do its full work in our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans, the 8th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And so the divine influence of grace begins to work on the heart and soul of a man or woman. The purpose of this divine influence is to fulfill God's part by the power of the blood in drawing a man or woman out of whatever circumstances the devil has trapped them in, to release their foot from the snare, to open the cage of captivity that they might enter into the heart of God. 
It is this divine influence of grace. It is God's part that he is doing. For so long, I believe that it was up to me to struggle with sin, to struggle with darkness, to always be in despair over my wickedness, always constantly scratching with my fingernails to somehow gain enough understanding that I could be allowed into the kingdom of God. What I didn't recognize was that salvation was not at my initiation. Salvation is at the initiation of God. It is God who came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were hiding in the bushes. The same is true today. It is the divine influence of grace that comes searching for us as we hide in the bushes, weeping over our lostness. It's the divine grace of God that comes searching us out, that uncovers everything in our spirit that says, come on out of that cave. Come on out of that darkness. Come on out of that pain. Come into my heart. He calls us. He is relentless in his call. Day and night, he is searching after his lost coin. Day and night, he is searching after his lost lamb. He is always calling, leave that bitterness behind. Leave that lust behind. Leave that anger behind. Leave that stealing behind. Leave all of darkness behind and come into the light. That's the cry of divine influence that works by grace. There's a passage of scripture in Philippians. Read it in context later today, but let me just share with you the statement I'll begin with verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The divine influence of grace is working right now in your heart, calling after you both to will and to do what God wants you to do. He does not rest. He does not sleep. He is relentless. He will confront you with your sin Time after time, he will call after you time after time. He will say, I love you, come out of that. And so Paul tells us, pay attention. With fear and with trembling, pay attention. Don't blow off that divine influence of grace. Just because God is gentle, just because God is faithful, just because God is full of love and mercy, don't blow off that constant calling after your heart that says, leave that alone. Turn aside from that. Don't walk in that anymore. Come out and be clean by the blood. Don't blow that off. But instead, he's saying, with fear and trembling, recognize the kind voice of God, because God also has wrath. 
and the day of his wrath is almost upon us. I look at some of your faces today and it's obvious you've been walking in sin and darkness this past week. I could almost go around the circle and identify the sin that I see on your face because I know that sin only comes, that darkness on your face only comes from certain kinds of sin. Now, we don't talk about these things openly and publicly. But that doesn't mean your face is not a book that is being read by your brothers and sisters. Your face is being read. You can't hide that kind of sin. Sin etches its way into your very features on your face. The glory of God can be seen on the face of a man or woman who has walked clean before God. And some of you today come into this house, you have not walked with God this week. You've walked in sin, you've walked in lust, you've walked in pornography, you've walked in bitterness, you've walked seeking after money, and that is etched into your face. How long will you resist the divine influence of grace? How long will you resist the love of God as he calls after your heart? How long will you think that you can resist and say no to the one who died for you? Now, I recognize that this is a process. It is both a process to finally be willing to come to terms with the weight of sin that rests upon us and to come to terms with the fact that we need to be saved. Sometimes, in his grace, God will bring this crashing down so apparently on our hearts that it's either suicide or repent. But for many, it's not that quick or that rapid. Oh, that it were. Oh, that every one of you today could see your true condition before God. With fear and trembling, you could see where you stand in the time of your allotted space and in the amount of your allotted grace. As Jonathan Edwards, quoting the scripture, said, Surely the day will come when your foot will slip and you will be cast into hell. Because you've played with God's grace. You've had no fear and trembling. You've just casually pushed it, pushed it, pushed it, thinking that it was always going to be there for you. The day will come when there will be no grace left. You will have used all of your measure of grace. And on that day, it's over. And judgment is spoken. It was that way with Naboth. Sitting with all of his money sitting with all of his sheep and cattle and donkeys, having his drunken feast. Time after time, God had called after this man's heart. He had given him a beautiful and loving wife, tender-hearted. But the day came when this sour man was stricken by God with a stroke. He lay dumb in his bed, frozen. And then the Lord touched his life and took it. 
and his wife went and married David, King David. Oh, God knows how to care for that person who is willing to submit to the divine influence of grace. And he knows how to judge the person who refuses to give way, who refuses to tremble before God and constantly casts aside the mercy. The day comes when the mercy runs out. The mercy is not forever. Today is the day of salvation. The judgment line that you may trip may be tonight. And it's over. Now, I recognize also that there is a maturing process that is necessary, and it's usually helpful to distinguish between overt sin and rebellion and maturity. We deal with both in the life of Abraham. Abraham receives the word in Genesis, the 11th chapter, that he is to leave the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. You recognize that this is the center of learning. It is the center of the occult learning, of the wisdom learning of the devil. There are two centers Egypt is one, and Ur of the Chaldees, and Babylon. This is where the devil has uncovered the depths of his occult knowledge. God has said, leave your family and leave your country and go to a land I will show you. He did not promise Abraham, that he would give him the land. Not yet. Now it's simply a command. Take your family, immediate family, leave your father's family, and go to the land I'm going to show you. And so Abraham says, yes, I'll go. And he goes, but he takes his whole family with him. Terah the father of Abram, means delay. And instead of going to the land of Canaan, they go halfway to Haran, and there they settle. So God has called Abram to come out of his family. He's called him to leave behind his family. He's called him to go to the land of Canaan. What does he do? His daddy says, I'm going with you. His nephew says, I'm going with you. The whole family says, if you're going, Abram, we're going too. And the father's name was Delay. And many of you have faced this struggle. God has called you out of darkness, and you have said, I've got to bring my family with me. And their name is Delay. Or I have to have my job. I have to have this. This is what's necessary before I can begin to go to the land you've called me to, God. He's called us all to the land of righteousness. 
Lord, I can only go halfway to the land of righteousness because I have all of these things and they're all named delay. What is delaying you today from rushing into the land of promise, the land of sanctification, the land of complete overcoming of all sin and darkness? What is it that's keeping you? What have you put the label on delay and you're allowing it to continue to run your life and stop you from moving forward boldly toward the land that God has called you to? This whole journey is a journey toward the land of Canaan. Did you know we can dwell in heaven right now? Right now we can dwell in heaven. The Lord Jesus intends that his presence be about us, that we be encompassed by angels, that we walk before him with fear and trembling, that we have constant fellowship with the Almighty, that he speak to us his direction, but we have delay in the way. What have you said yes to that is delaying your journey toward the land that God has called you to go to? Finally, delay dies. Will you allow delay to hold you until it dies? Why not just put it to death? Why not just say, for me and for my household, we will serve the Lord. We will allow no demonic spirits to delay us. We will allow no financial concerns to delay us. We are on our way to Cana land. Finally, again, in chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's households, and go to the land I will show you. And this time, God gives him a promise. No reason is given for his going. That's very important. We're a people who want reasons. God says, I want you to do this, and we say, why? I want you to go to such and such a place. Why? God sent me to a store and I say, okay, God, what am I supposed to do here? Why am I here? Does he have to have a reason for sending his servant? God doesn't answer why questions very well. But those are my best questions, God. Why are the circumstances like they are, God? Now, it's important that I get this answer, God, because it will determine whether or not I serve you. So my why questions are, my God, they are named delay. God is not pleased with my delay or my why questions. So God says, go over here and Why, God? My question, why, delays me in my journey. And God's timing is very critical. If you miss God's timing, you don't understand. He has arranged circumstances in countless lives. 
He has carefully engineered a thousand different factors. There is like a clock running. And now there is this one small space that has opened. And he says, step into that space. And we say, why? And as we're there saying, why? That small space closes. And now we've put God to the task of having to rearrange a thousand and one different minute circumstances in how many lives so that he might give us another chance to step into that place that he's asked us to step into. But again, we say, why? And so we resist the divine influence of grace and we miss what God has for us because we're afraid or we're in unbelief or we're in rebellion. And we're saying, what did I do? All I asked was why. All I asked was why. And you missed the whole airplane trip that God was ready to take you on. Because you stood at the the gate saying, why should I get on that airplane? And it left without you. How many missed opportunities do you have in your life that you refuse to step into when God had spent such time arranging all of these circumstances out of his compassionate love for your heart? You're saying, why should I do that, God? gives a promise. I'll make you into a great nation. Why does he say that first? Because he knows that in Abraham's heart, he has to replace Haran. They're a wealthy family. They had to shut down their businesses in Haran. So God is saying, okay, I see what I cost you. You understand? God knows what he costs you. And God always pays for what he asks for. If God asks you to do something, it's because he has something better he wants to give to you. And you stop what God wants to give you by asking why. You delay the grace of God in your life by asking why. Maybe he'll assign you even two or three more years of prison life. Because when the door of the prison opened, you refused it. Why should I leave this cell, God? Why should I give up my wonderful punishment that I enjoy so much, God? He says, I will bless you. No man or woman has ever chosen to follow Jesus and not had to have their pocketbook wiped out. That's true. Look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus said, I'll pay back four times, whatever it's cost me. Whatever I've cheated, I'll pay you back. And I'll give half of all that I have to the poor. Right there, he's now in poverty. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come eat with you. 
I'll come sit down and eat with you. Isn't that what he said in Revelation? I'll knock on the door, and if you'll open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. He's saying, if you're willing to give up all you have, I'll come eat with you. The only way you can eat with Jesus is to give up everything because he's the food. He's the bread. He's the wine. No one has ever followed Jesus and brought their treasures with him. Do you know what cost Nicodemus? Nicodemus was one of the wealthiest men in the world. That's what historians tell us. He owned tin mines in Europe with Joseph of Arimathea. He used his fortune to fund the New Testament church. He was the primary funding mechanism for the New Testament church. You have 15,000 people who joined the New Testament church. None of them are from Jerusalem, or almost none of them are from Jerusalem. They're from other parts of the world. Housing has to be provided. They don't have jobs. They're all day worshiping and listening and learning the gospel and being disciplined and trained how to live by faith. And Nicodemus' money is funding much of this. Now, others like Barnabas also brought their money, but that was little bits of money. It took millions of dollars to establish the New Testament church. These 15,000 people, figure it out for yourselves. How much are they going to have to pay a month for rent? How much are they going to have to pay for food? What are their expenses going to be? Those expenses had to be covered. That's why it says they brought in everything and everybody had everything in common. No person has ever come to the Lord and not lost financially. That's why the second party is, I will bless you. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back abundantly all that I cost you. I will make your name great. Why? Because he's lost his standing in Haran. He's no longer a well-known businessman. He lost his place of standing in the community of Haran. And the Lord says, okay, I'll make that up. I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Lord, here I am, a stranger. I'm following you. Nobody knows me. I can't contribute like I could in Haran. There I could be involved in the community chest. There I had connections. I could take care of the poor. The Lord said, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Oh, and we're blessed today through him. The seed of Abraham was on that cross for us. All of salvation has been opened for us by the seed of Abraham. So Abram left. He took God's deal. And he left as the Lord told him. But 
Lot went with him. Why? He was supposed to leave his family behind. But I can't leave poor Lot. He's he's my nephew. His daddy died. I've got responsibilities here, God. Oh, you can hear the whine now. So it's not surprising that they set out for the land of Cana and they arrive there. The Lord appears to Abram and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. You notice that promise did not come until he got to the land. He builds an altar there. He worships the Lord. And then he goes and camps halfway between Bethel and Ai. Bethel means house of God. And Ai means heap of ruins. So where does Abraham choose to live? I won't live at the house of God, and I won't live in the world. How about if I just come and camp halfway in between? I need balance in my life. I can't afford too much God. And I can't afford too much world. I'd like to just be a lukewarm Christian. Oh, and some of you in this house, could I be very personal? Some of you in this house, you listen to the word that's preached here, and then you run to another place where you can have party time with Christians. Because you want a religion that's happy and laughing and and good times are rolling, but at the same time, there's a little bit of There's a little bit of the, the grace of God that calls you to the straight word. So you want the straight word, and then you want the fun time, the jokes, the laughter, the foolishness. Some of you come to this house and you, you listen and your face is very sober. And then you go hang with worldly people. Chase the skirts, guys. Look at the guys, girls. Play the game. Look with lust in your heart at the beautiful cars. Or whatever it is that happens to grab you. For some reason, at the National Prayer Chapel, we've been very comfortable parked with Abram. Halfway between the house of God and the heap of ruin. And my word to you today is, it's time to make a decision. It's time to make a decision. The divine influence of grace is calling you to live in the house of God and to utterly depart AI and all that is associated with AI.
Verse 9. Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. That's a very significant statement. Do you know where the Negev was? Negev is the outer edges of the land of Cana as you journey toward Egypt. It wasn't until verse 10 that it says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt. Oh, Abram didn't just go down to Egypt. He went to the Negev. He went as far as he could in God's land in preparation for his stepping over into the world. Some of you like to live in the Negev of God's presence. You want to be in the presence of God, but you want to be in the Negev so that if it gets too tough in the house of God, you can flee over here and get some sustenance from the world because you don't like the famine you're in. I praise God the National Prayer Chapel is in famine and it's God's famine. It's God's famine. Some of you are in famine financially. I want to tell you it's God's famine. Some of you are struggling with how am I going to deal with the reality of this world? It's crushing me. I need a job. I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. And your self-needs are absorbing your heart as you dwell in the Negev. It's God's desert. It's God's famine. And he wants to know, are you going to move back up into the land of Canaan? Are you going to dwell firmly in the middle of God's will? Or are you going to run to the, to the land of Egypt? A place of plenty, a place of provision, a place of opportunity, a place where a man can get ahead in the world, a place where you can pick up little slave girls, Like Abraham did. And produced a donkey of a son. If you want to produce donkeys, move on down the Negev. And you'll produce donkeys. There's a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. What do you do in a, in a severe famine? What do you do? What do you do in a severe famine when there's no love for you, when there's only rejection? What do you do when your family turns against you? What do you do when you don't have any money? What do you do when you don't have a job? What do you do when the car breaks down and there's no way to repair it? What do you do when everything seems to be crashing? What do you do when you get sick? Jan has been very sick. Close to death. You all haven't seen that, but... That's what's been happening. 
And I've been laying on my face, interceding for my wife that she wouldn't die. That she wouldn't bleed to death. Crying out to God. Continuing to carry the responsibilities of pastoral work. Continuing to carry the ministry of the radio. Jan, continuing, some days not able to get out of the bed, but for an hour, get up and do the specific things that she had to do to help me with radio. Many days I've had to prepare the meals for our family. I've had to give Jan full care. Any normal person would have rushed her to the hospital. The Lord said, if you take her, she'll die. So what do I do? I've cried out to the Lord for her healing. I've spent hours on my face before God. I've asked for direction. And he spoke. He said, feed her beef three or four times a week. We were eating no red meat. Feed her beef three or four times a week. He awakened me in the early hours of the next morning and he told me a specific probiotic. And he said, go get it for Jan. I jumped out of bed. I said, I'm on my way. And he said, no, silly. The store doesn't open till 10. I was on my way. My wife's dying. Whatever he tells me I'm going to do, She's bleeding to death. I went to the store and I bought what the Lord told me to buy. I gave it to Jan and she said, yes, I'm supposed to take that. And she began taking those probiotics. The condition began to improve. The blood began to lessen. Instead of maybe an hour a day on her feet, she was spending most of the day on her feet. I'm not talking way back when. I'm talking current experience. I continued to cry out to the Lord. Last week, the Lord told me, vitamin D, large amounts. What's vitamin D going to do for Jan? I didn't ask why. I just got her vitamin D. And she began taking large amounts. This morning, for the first time, she said, Ray, I'm becoming normal. Jesus is healing me. I'm being restored. 
Now, I wish Jesus had said, go and wave your hands over her. Go and dump a bottle of oil over her head. Have some zap and some boom. But instead, he wants to operate organically. And he doesn't want me to ask why. So I've been going through this agonizing heart struggle. I've said to some of you, I've said from this pulpit, pray for us. And some of you have come and said, Pastor, what are you talking about? What should we pray for? I've just said, pray for us. I can't talk about it. What I couldn't talk about is my wife was dying. Your pastor was dying. You see, on this journey, we have to make some decisions. Jan and I have made the decision that the Lord God of heaven is our doctor. We made the decision that we would trust in the healing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we stand. He's called us to go to Cana land. We're on our way. We know this is a life and death deal. I know that along the way, I could lose Jan. I know along the way, Jan could lose me. I know along the way, I could lose you. I know along the way, you could lose me. But I've determined in my heart, I will not lose Jesus. And by the divine act of grace, the divine influence of grace, God has said to me, I will not lose you. I will not lose you. And so I trust my sweetheart in the hands of God. And I trust you in the hands of God. And I love you enough to speak the truth to you. That you can no longer afford to camp between the house of God and Ai, the heap of ruin. There is only one safe place of dwelling, and that is the house of God. Is there a famine in the land? Yes, there's a famine in the land. There's a desperate famine in the land, in my life and in yours. I will not go to Egypt. I will dwell in the famished land of Cana until the deliverance of God comes. And the deliverance of God is coming for my sweetheart. And the deliverance of God is coming 
for the National Prayer Chapel. And the deliverance of God is coming for you. If you will heed the divine influence of grace that is calling after you. Almighty God, these things are so serious. This is life or death. Lord, I pray today that you will break the sin that is etched on my brothers' and sisters' faces. You will remove it from their hearts. And you will establish us together in Cana land. I pray, Lord, as we take this communion today, that your spirit will be poured out, that your presence will be magnified, that guilt will be removed, and the power of sin will be broken. And Lord, my eyes are upon you. Lord, my eyes are upon you. For you alone are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I will worship you. I pray in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Whitbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Nothing else.
God.